Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Eda Chakmakci. Today, our subject is the book Recovering Armenia by Lerna Ekmekciolo. She's a Macmillan Stewart Associate Professor of History and Women and Gender Studies uh, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where we're recording today. Lerna, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. We spoke to Lerna roughly two years ago now about her in-progress research for Recovering Armenia, which is now out this year with Stanford University Press. Congratulations, Lerna. Thanks. Uh, and this work is really dealing with uh, a topic that hasn't often been covered by historians. That is, uh, in the study of um, the history of Ottoman Armenians, there is a lot written about the Armenian genocide and what led up to it, but much less on what came after and how the genocide transformed Armenian society. So the subject of Recovering Armenia is the uh, life and activities of Armenians in Ottoman Istanbul in the post-genocide context in early Republican Turkey. Lerna, I want to start off our conversation by asking you what the purpose and the question of Recovering Armenia is. Recovering Armenia, the limits of belonging in post-genocide Turkey, it's about Armenians, uh, the afterlife of Armenians Mm -hmm. in post-genocide Turkey, written from the perspective of their spokespeople mm-hmm. who were concentrated in Istanbul yes. at this time. I've studied this. Um, these people, the spokespeople of the community, the elites, the intellectuals, lay and religious uh, thought leaders, opinion makers, in two different consecutive periods. Uh-huh. The first being from the armistice years, 1918-22, the second being 22-23 to uh, mid-30s. Uh-huh. If you're asking me why I've endeavored to write this book and dedicate yes. a decade of my life to this work, it does have some... Uh, I am I'm an Armenian from Turkey. Mm-hmm. I've grown up uh, feeling like the society reminded me that I was an Armenian and mm-hmm. I wanted to excavate the formative years of this community to be able to understand why I felt the way that I felt it. So there's this personal biographical, uh, autobiographical rather aspect to it. The other one is that, as you already mentioned, there is a huge historiographical historiographical uh, vacuum uh, in the literature. I, initially, I thought I was the only one who didn't know about Armenians in Turkey, mm-hmm. in the early Turkish Republic. Yeah. But once I've come here to the United States, I recognize that there really is nothing written about them. And that I thought I was uniquely uh, well-situated to write about them because yeah. I'm native and Turkish and Armenian already. Mm-hmm. I, I know the community. I am from the community. So I have the kind of resources that would uh, make up for the absences in the literature because this community is still still kind of captive mm-hmm, inside mm-hmm. Turkey. It matters if you are if to be able to reach sources, access, have access to the community and it's past, it's it kind of worked for me that I did uh, I did have connections already. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned that Istanbul becomes a center of Armenian, Ottoman Armenian activity in the post-Ottoman context after the First World War uh, and in the early years uh, of the Republican period. Could you briefly 
summarize that historical context, the armistice period, what that meant for Armenians, and then, of course, the establishment of the Turkish Republic uh, and how that either shifted or continued certain aspects of the political life that emerged in the immediate aftermath uh, of the Armenian Genocide in the First World War. The first four years of my study, 1918 to late 1922, especially the beginning years of this short transition period, Mm Uh, is marked with an acute sense of hope on the part of Armenian leadership, both inside Constantinople, Allied occupied Constantinople, as well as outside of it. They do think that the Allies uh, will now punish the Turks. Mm -hmm. First of all, it it is a time period where the perpetrator group is defeated and humbled and yeah. actually the the main orchest- orchestra- orchestrators of this uh undertaking that we now call the genocide they left the country mm-hmm. right um so they they are energized for their territorial demands mostly mm-hmm. they see. do want a sovereign uh state of their own in which they can enjoy majority status that they can uh be safe remain secure I mean, there are attendant goals, such right. as uh, recovering the orphans, refugee crisis. This is a crisis of refugees at this time, taking care of them, the sick, the wounded, all these, uh, or le- reclaiming, as we talked in the previous post- podcast, reclaiming women and children from right. inside Muslim households. This is completely gone. <laughs> as we know how the story ends, but the transition itself is why I... I remained obsessed with this topic for the longest time because it is one drastic change from hope to disappointment right. and restructuring, reorientation. That kind of su- is successful, mm-hmm. I think. So there's this period of hope that is characterized by an effort to rebuild or reinvigorate the Armenian nation to care for those who have been impacted by the war period and also kind of move towards what might even be an independent Armenia if you look at the global political context. But then, of course, those hopes are dashed and the focus of the community dramatically shifts. Yes, the focus of the community shifts, but some things remain constant, I see. such as the emphasis on family as the mm. beacon of continuity for Armenians, regardless of what happens in the realm of politics. So the ways in which Armenians recover Armenia, Armenianness, the idea of it, it's in gendered terms, mm-hmm. first of all, because it involves the family mm-hmm. with gendered members of that nuclear patriarchal family serving as that which is going to save them, which will make them survive. It might be the genocide or it might be the minoritization uh, sure. that uh, came with the 1923 uh, signing of the Lausanne Treaty between yes. Turkey and the uh, British and the Allies. So for our listeners, simply put, uh, the 1923 Treaty of Lausanne, to a large extent, is the end of national hopes for former Ottoman Armenians of having a national home for Armenians uh, in the lands of the former Ottoman Empire, in, in what will become Turkey. But nonetheless, this geography, Anatolia, or the Republic of Turkey, remains the only home for many of these people. We, we won't talk about Soviet Armenia here and other places that Armenians ended up, but for many formerly Ottoman Armenians, Turkey remains their home. Yes, we don't know the exact numbers because the first census inside Turkey is conducted in 1927 and the mm-hmm. way they ask about ethnicity is yes. a bit murky with the, they ask about the language right. mm. spoken. 
But about 200,000 Armenians, yes. it looks like, remained inside Turkish borders after 23. Overwhelming majority of them concentrated in Istanbul mm-hmm. for historic reasons. I mean, yeah. Istanbul wasn't affected by the genocide right. the same way that the mm-hmm. other parts of Ottoman Anatolia was. Uh, so they are mostly there, and definitely this is the place, Istanbul is the place where the patriarchate is the yeah. seat of leadership. Civil and religious leadership is. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to look at them. After 1922, no Armenian language periodical or book is published in Turkey outside of Istanbul. Mm. So you've talked about this kind of transition that occurs in 1923. What are the kind of hopes, aspirations, the political energies, the intellectual energies of Armenians in Turkey, in Turkey going towards? Could you just elaborate about, about this new... Uh, context and kind of what how they try to achieve and preserve their Armenianness. Hmm. There are two questions there. Yeah. The transition issue is is very straightforward. They do immediately stop talking about secessionism or separatism mm-hmm. once they understand Armenians in Constantinople understand that the Kemalist victory over Western Anatolia, Smyrna, is is a done deal. Yeah. Uh, they actually flee. The people who were at the forefront of these uh, territorial demands, which they, the, who are the people who worked or collaborated with the allies, always the enemy from the perspective of the Turks, mm-hmm. uh, they flee the country. In the September and October of 1922, about 50,000 Armenians and Greeks leave the city. Uh, the ones who remain, uh, which in their perspective, forms the second part of my book. That's And that's the second part of your question. What do they do? They definitely uh, stop talking about land in general. Mm. They Instead, they talk about loyalty, dramatic, theatrical uh, performances of being loyal uh, citizens now, mm. uh, 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 and disidentifying themselves. They do disidentify quite consciously um, with the with not just the allies and the Christian world and the Western Europe, but also their kin outside of Turkey, right. what we call the Armenian diaspora, right? We are good Armenians, we are we are going to be good Turks, keep us, don't do anything to us. Their goal mainly is to stay put. And I looked at their performances of uh, their responses to what Turkey does with them, which we can talk a bit more sure, extensively. Okay. You mentioned this word theatrical performance. Uh, how did they express this? How do we get at it? I mean, for instance, did they put on plays or is it, you know, how do they express this kind of new attachment to the Turkish nation? Uh, I mean, both in terms of sources, but uh, what is this aspect of the performativity? The most easily uh, tractable one is the press. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Armenian periodicals of this era after 20. 20, beginning with tw- early 23, you see a lot of pictures of Mustafa Gemal Ata, later Atatürk. Like the, he himself embodies this change, yeah. the way Armenians at least represent, uh, present what's going on around them, and then they, uh, they worship him. Mm. Another uh, point is that it looks like they actually, uh, from what I gather from different sources, is the state asks in various ways, ask for their contributions, monetary contributions for different kind of projects, mm. 
which are in fact voluntary kind of uh, like a levy almost <laughs> almost a levy and they are very happy to give it like there are certain days when the income of this ex institution mm. be it the Armenian hospital or uh, another uh, community organization is going to go to the Turkish air forces mm. one very good example of this performance is uh, it comes in 1934 I think when Franz Werfel writes this book 40 days of Musada uh, this is yeah. a just as a German guy who observes the resistance in southern Turkey of what happens during uh, during the war to this particular community and writes mm-hmm. about the resistance and turns it into a novel in America one of these major production companies are trying to turn it into a film yeah and Ankara resist this Ankara is very conscious that this is going to be negative propaganda that it's include all these uh, tropes as they see it uh, so in order to support Ankara's position against the American and France Werfel position France Werfel, as it happens he's just he's Jew from Germany Armenians in Istanbul come together and burn the book uh, inside a church actually saying that it's the Jews who are doing this Um, in order to uh, divide us the Turks and, and they stand w- with the with mm-hmm. the Turkish state so would they invite reporters to th- and other people to witness this and uh, I presume it's definitely reported right yeah so. I don't know who invited I mean they should yeah. probably they were invited or they've heard about it I don't know the details of it but they made sure it was a public the, spectacle yes, right? because otherwise why would they yeah. do it yeah it's a spectacle Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton, Nir Shafir, and Eda Cekmakci talking with Lerna Ekmekciolu about her new book, Recovering Armenia, hot off the press from Stanford University Press. Uh, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for a quick link to that book, as well as a bibliography and links to many other episodes uh, related both to the, the history of, of national identities uh, in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman worlds, as well as uh, topics Uh, related to the history of women and gender in the Middle East, which is what we'll be talking about for much of the rest of this uh, podcast. So, Lerna, you talked a little bit about the performativity of citizenship and loyalty, various kinds of loyalty and fealty that, uh, Adam, or that Armenians are looking to express during the early Republican period. Um, and you mentioned the role of the press uh, in this, this, these perform, this performance. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, the press landscape or the the publication landscape uh, of Armenians in Istanbul during this 1920s and 30s um, and sort of the nature of some of these publications, how you use them as sources and uh, uh, what they say. Yeah, there are more than 30 uh, periodicals published in Istanbul after 1923 actually maybe people are people are usually surprised when I say that because they think that it's over Armenianness and so Armenian, more than 30 Armenian period Armenian language yeah. yes definitely but when you think of it in relation to the previous period mm-hmm. it's actually a dwarf number because during the armistice years uh, more than 85. Mm-hmm. Actually, at one point, more than a hundred newspapers in the 1918, late 1918, 1919 uh, academic year, so to speak, there <laughs> are a lot of uh, 
because it is called a lot of periodicals. It is it's almost like post 1908 Young Turk Revolution. Yeah, it's, a, it's referred to by Armenians at this time as a, that they are living in an atmosphere of freedom, especially if you think about it as coming after World War One. Yeah, uh, it's it's already it's telling something, right? It's mm-hmm. it's relaxation of various things, but only one periodical survived that transition mm. without changing its editor and without changing its name and without uh, giving a long break and it's Haigen Haigen yes which means literally in Armenian it means the Armenian woman it's an Armenian woman's women's journal that is explicitly feminist mm-hmm. and it's quite illuminating simply because the same journal you can see those transitions those changes in perspective discourse attachments mm-hmm. even only by looking at Huygens pages from one of um quoting on anti-turkish stance that is that's very open about taking revenge in the in the form of uh, get finally having an Armenia a free Armenia to pro-Ataturk almost Kemalist publication that is very obedient it's it's really it shows you how tamed the minority this armenian minority community becomes but it also gives us a lot of clues about how feminism armenian feminism of the time has evolved um could you talk a bit about the writers um for the journal um were they mostly women exclusively women mm-hmm. or in the beginning um there are more there are a lot of men too Uh, in Haigen. Haigen's editor is an important figure in Armenian history. Unfortunately, was not uh, uh, studied well. Uh, before my book, in the book, there are chapters dedicated to her ideology. Uh, Haiganush Mark is na- it's her name, born in Istanbul in 1882, died in Istanbul in 1964. She's a character <laughs> for various reasons. But unlike so many of her comrades, feminist comrades, in the community, she doesn't leave Istanbul, even though she was involved in uh, in pro-Allied occupation activities, anti-Turkish activities before uh, before 1923. As as it happens, she's also a well-liked character, um, despite her sometimes radical activism and this has its own reasons that I try to uh, explain in the book. Um, she does give space to even men who are anti-feminists just to motiv- just to animate conversations about this issue of uh, Armenian women's rights in the Armenian community. So you mentioned in the book um, at around 1920, um, there's a go- gold fund day um, which women contributed with their gold coins, rings, and necklaces. Um, so it's interesting, actually, to think about how women were connecting with the community ideal and where they were situating themselves, and especially at that particular period, by means of their economic contribution. Right. There are a lot of expectancies from Armenian Women of Istanbul, especially at this time period, if you think about it, 
during the war, they were not deported. So they're part of Istanbul, Armenian Istanbul, right? Orphanages remained intact, hospitals remained intact, schools remained intact, and most people also remained intact, except for this uh, main intellectual community of about 250 people who were deported and then mostly killed. The others remained put. In, and of all those people who were deported and then killed, they're all men except for one, mm-hmm. right? So there's already a surplus of <laughs> female intellectuals uh, by 1918. And they face as right after the armistice, when Armenian, uh, what they called Darak, um, Darakrial deportees come to Istanbul, they are going to take care of them, right? They, are, they feel the need and they are asked to uh, organize for the care of these less unfortunate uh, as they call it, call them uh, counterparts. Many of them women, because we we estimate that Armenian genocide scholars have been estimating that because of Armenian adult men were the primary targets of the genocide, m- the majority of survivors were women and children, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll be put in orphanages, in shelter homes, uh, in hospitals, all the schools. There are refugee camps in Istanbul that hold that host uh, Armenian refugees from Mesopotamia uh, and Levant. So some of these women, are there, many of them are also well-to-do, uh, uh, middle to upper class elite women, and uh, they not only physically go and serve in these institutions, but they also help fundraise for, for these causes. So Gold Fund Day is one of those days, except it is... Uh, it's for the benefit of Armenia, because, and this is where it gets this topic gets a bit more complicated, because there is an Armenia. By the time that the Ottoman armistice is declared, there is already an independent Armenia, right? That lives for twenty-two months, um, from May, so it is it declares independence. Armenian in in Transcaucasia, so what we call Russian Armenians, they declare independence in. May of 1918, but the state becomes, uh, well, actually, in response to Kemalist forces' intrusions and attacks, it's not able to hold it, defend itself, and becomes a part of the Soviet Union by December 1920. Um, so Gold Fund is organized in order to help this uh, poor Armenia get, get better have uh, buy logistics equipment so it, it is one other instance of how Armenians in Istanbul including their women and feminists are uh, working for pro-Armenia causes against the Turkish uh, Kemalist forces which is not going to <laughs> uh, reflect well on their part after the Republic because they'll be accused of betrayal and this is the reason why they are overemphasizing loyalty the ultimate traitors have been Armenians, and they, there is now proof. So the women who were women writers who were writing in Haigin, um, self-identified as feminists, um, had to reconcile uh, modernizing motives on the one hand um, with the ideas about the national project um, and their own identities as feminists. Yes, and um, this is one of the reasons why I studied them. I try to understand how what did it take for them to be equally engaged in 
in the national project, whatever it might be, in this particular time period. First, it was uh, territorial emancipation, and then it became, after yeah. 23, uh, uh, preservation of Armenian-ness in this most hostile environment that is the Turkish Republic. Mm-hmm. How they reconcile that with their commitment to emancipate their sex? And mm-hmm. this is the terms in which they're understanding it, that we want the betterment of our sex and we want the betterment of our nation or community. Um, it's a challenge. Their arguments are paradoxical. They try various different strategies uh, to make them read or uh, uh, or sound less uh, conflicting or paradoxical. They will perform their duties to the nation. Okay, they are asked to be the mothers of the nation, take care of the sick and the refugees, fundraise, all these things that I already mentioned. They make a Hagen writers makes a make a big uh, point that they accept this rather gendered idea of family writ large. This is this is gendered division of national labor that we are talking about, right? Mm-hmm. But in they will also ask for what to many looked radical at the time that they want equal participation in the governing bodies of the nation. Originally, this was the Armenian National Assembly that met in the Armenian Patriarchate building, which is, which we can think of as the Armenian parliament, actually, Ottoman Armenian parliament. Um, they want women's voices to be heard in that, in that uh, assembly. When it when the political conditions change and this assembly is no more, then they ask for different kind of, they want to have a political voice be more conventionally thought of, uh, to, to like political roles, political voice, the way political subjectivities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That because they think that women are entitled to this kind of uh, planning, future thinking and organization in the present if there's response there's reactions to that did you apart from these textual sources did you do any oral history interviews with maybe women who know the period or who heard about the period and these Hagen writers were all Hagen writers are dead now mm-hmm. and they were that when I started the project but I did do oral history interviews with uh, people who were born during the time that I study, okay, so they would they would not be able to read Hagen at that time, but I thought maybe they would remember, mm-hmm. um, or at least they'll remember the time period. So I'm not an oral historian. I did in the the book does not actually use a lot of these interviews, but I personally was really curious mm-hmm. uh, to hear their perspective. And I, one of the women, one of the interviews that I conducted with this woman who is now in JP Jamaica Plains here in an Armenian nursing home. Uh, she was born in 1918 in Istanbul. And we we're talking about, I mean, really, this was very informal conversation. She's a talkative lady. She's telling me about how life was back then mm-hmm. in Istanbul. And she's been living here for more than 50 years. She, I, in passing, I mentioned her without making a big deal out of, out of it, that if, if she remembered Haigan Schmark the editor of Heigen. Mm-hmm. I didn't say that she was the editor of Heigen. I just said, do you remember Heigen Schmack? And she was like surprised that I thought that she might not have remembered. She's like, oh, 
Of course, what do you mean? I do remember, and she recited to me. I have this recording one day, I'll, I'll upload it somewhere. Actually, she remembers Haiganush Mark's motto, and Haiganush Mark's motto, which is in itself revealing it, that needle, ine, sherep, which is ladle, uh, kepche, and uh, pen, are always next to her. That she is the culmination of all these three things, which are both domestic, so she right. gestures, she accepts that domestic yeah. role with the uh, needle and the ladle, but she also has the pen, which is the ultimate active uh, mm-hmm. contribution to public life right. of that symbol, right? And this lady in the nursing home, she remembered that motto and she recited it to me. That's how she, she said her dad actually made turned Huygens and Huygens was published for uh, 13 uninterrupted, 13 years uninterrupted. So she, her dad turned them into encyclopedia volumes. So when she came of age, she read the whole encyclopedia of Huygens. Wow. So not just your average newspaper, but something that's really a resource um, and something that, you know, it's treasured and kept and it's kind of read across generations almost. Yeah. In that sense, it's folding is also telling. Mm-hmm. It is closed down by the Turkish government mm-hmm. in early 1933, mm-hmm. abruptly. Well, that's an interesting timing. I mean, for a lot of reasons, obviously. Uh, but one of them being that, as I recall, uh, Turkish women gained suffrage, if not right before that, sometime in the 1930s. Isn't that right? Right. Right around that time. And Mustafa Kemal Atatürk actually orders the Turkish Women's Association closed right after women receive suffrage right. rights. So this it is coincides super well with this. I mean, it overlaps with this time period. In the case of Huygen, I, I think they are related, but what is more relevant is the, the new press law of 1931, uh-huh. uh, which states that People who have worked against uh, worked with the enemy and against the Turkish state during the uh, national struggle years, that is the armistice years, totally referring to the Kemalist struggle, Milli Mücadele, are not anymore allowed to publish periodicals. Hmm. And Haiganush Mark's um, past comes to haunt her uh. in the early Turkish Republic during the peak of what we call high Kemalism. And yeah. that is emblematic of what happens, have happened to Armenians. Yeah, exactly. uh, since then, history is relevant to the present. I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things that I heard there uh, and sort of connecting it to the broader, the, the strange suppression of feminist movements in Turkey during the 1930s as the state is championing, championing, championing a sort of state feminism, right? A new modern uh, Turkish woman with all these sort of uh, associations of domesticity, all these things that Haiganush was, Mark was in, in many ways uh, participating in and contributing to, but in other ways somehow becomes subversive and, and when, it, when, when feminism is nationalized in Turkey. Um, I mean, there's kind of two level, I mean, Armenian feminists are facing two different struggles there. The struggle for survival as Armenians in Turkey and survival as feminists within an Armenian uh, political community. And at the same time, the larger context of Turkey, the the problems faced by all feminists in Turkey, uh, within the context of a sort of centralizing uh, nation state. 
in the 1930s. It's it's telling that uh, when Turkish women got their right to vote in the municipal elections, this was a the suffrage didn't happen overnight. It was a two-tiered p- process. Hayganushmark, Haygin, there's an editorial, and there are other uh, pieces as well, written in order to congratulate Turkish women, which means that hey, they don't consider themselves as Turkish women. So when 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 women in Turkey gain their rights, Hayganushmark do not consider this mm. as her or her community's gain. Mm. Actually, she uses that occasion to shame her own community's men into sharing uh, whatever political power they are left with with their women. It becomes an interesting alliance of some sort. Armenian feminists uh, finding a friend in the Turkish state almost. Uh, so in this case, um, she uses the, the the moment to make an opportunity to assert uh, political rights within the Armenian community, within the internal politics of the Armenian community. Exactly. Saying that, see, even the Turkish Republic has now given the right to vote to its women. How can our tiny patriarchate cannot have a few members from our women folk who are going to uh, uh, be the members of the education commission or uh, the other commissions that the patriarchate had at the moment? So it's seen as a positive change that Armenians should emulate. So, Lerna, we've talked about the involvement of uh, Armenian women uh, in the politics of the period from the late Ottoman period through the war, through the genocide, through the armistice period and into the Republican period. Uh, and we've talked about some of the challenges uh, they confronted on multiple fronts. Uh, I want to come back to the, the larger question, uh, the question that you raise in your book, again, through, through the lens of women and household and all of these things we've been talking about. Uh, in spite of these challenges and in spite of the, the consequences of the time, uh, how did Armenians in post-Lausanne Turkey, after 1923, that is, in early Republican Turkey, um, ensure the survival of their community uh, and of their identities? So initially, I was interested in understanding what it takes for a group to reinvent itself after a major catastrophe. Yeah. As a group, what do they do to make their grouphood continue after an existential crisis. In the case of Armenians, we do know that they did, so, so not only Armenians physically survived, but the Armenian community survived, not just in Armenia proper, but also in the diaspora, yep. but even inside the perpetrator state. And this is a place where, um, yes, there's some change, but there's a lot of continuity from the very late Ottoman Empire to early Turkish Republic. Uh, we do know that this, the regime does not acknowledge what had happened. It not only doesn't acknowledge, but it accuses Armenians of uh, wrongdoing. The remaining Armenians are not allowed to mourn their losses. They can't occupy the public uh, as they used to before 1923, even before the genocide. 
they are still not wanted. That's for sure. When you look at the Lausanne uh, conference uh, negotiation yeah. document, it's clear that they didn't want to be the home. The Turkish Ankara delegation did not want the remaining Armenians to remain in Turkey. They wanted to. Tr- they tried right. to exchange them with a place, as they did with the Greeks. Right. Exactly. Right. But there wasn't. They couldn't find a place to get the Armenians. Yeah. Because they wanted to keep Moscow out of the negotiations. Now Armenia was Soviet. A long story there. Okay. But also, even if we didn't know the Lausanne uh, backstage of Lausanne negotiations, we could still understand it because Armenians are discriminated in early Turkish Republic. So, but still. There is a there is a fairly to this day there is a fairly contact like uh, compact uh, Armenian community people identifying as Armenian proud Armenians mm-hmm. who have this hyphenated identity of some sort right so how did this happen it, which goes back to the original question right. of me being one of them I looked at the ways in which the Turkish state categorized these communities that the state deemed as non-Turk basically, and they are all non-Muslims, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, there is discrimination, right? After 1923, non-Muslims, specifically Greeks and Armenians, but it's also sometimes extended to Jews as well, they were kicked out of uh, military and civil bureaucracy. Uh, they did not have freedom of travel inside Turkey. Uh, they couldn't form Boy Scouts. They did not. Ha- they weren't allowed to uh, form associations on the basis of their ethnicity. So there is a lot of deprivations on the one hand that they that are imposed on them because they are not Muslims yeah. and they are not Turks. But on the other hand, there is an invitation to belong. Right? There is assimilation. The Turkish state occasionally invited Armenians and other minorities in to become like the Turks, right? The proper citizens, not citizens in law. So um, in 1926, they were each community, each each minority community were asked to relinquish their Lausanne Treaty granted right to their customary law in matters of uh, personal status law. Right. So after the passing of 1926, passing of the civil uh, code, which right. is secular in nature, then uh, there is, this is the end of legal pluralism and actually the end of the millet system as we know it. When the new surname law passes, minorities are asked sometimes even forced to change their last names from non-Turkish sounding names to Turkish last names. Yeah. Ultimate example, of course, is 1933, passing of the student's pledge, Andamans. This is a short poem. Every morning, every student in every primary school in Turkey had to recite, and it starts with, I'm a Turk, and and I'm a Turk, I'm righteous, I'm hardworking, and it ends with, uh, I dedicate my being to the the well-being of Turks, Mm. right? And it remained in effect until October 2013. So I, as well as Eda Çakmakçı, my <laughs> colleague here, uh, we have recited it uh, every day. Which, but I recited it as an Armenian. Right. Right. And in my other parts of my life, I wasn't uh, treated as a as a Turk. Mm-hmm. So there is this discrepancy, a paradoxical, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat dizzying situation of estrangement 
as well as uh, invitation, really, belonging. Which goes back to the early years of the Republic. So how do I, so, but what do Armenians do? Do they get dizzy? Was the question, right? <laughs> What's their response? And I looked at it and I, what I saw was that no, they think it's very normal. I, I guess, I guess. I don't know what they thought, but at least the way they behaved, as I can detect it on their written text and visual material, is that they didn't express any kind of surprise or unexpectedness. And I've thought long about this, and I think it's because they are used to it. So this is, they have the repertoire and habits of mind and reflexes to make sense of it. It's not surprising because they have been immersed in this before. Mm. Again, they have, the, I think, both the state and Armenians have the institutional memory, long memory of how to deal with each other. Yeah. And this is where I come to my point about secular demise. What is a secular demise? This is not a definition that I paste on Armenians. It's not their name. It's not a it's not a description of who they are. As I don't do this. I think it's an analytical tool. I use it. I, I invented it as an analytical tool just to help. First, it helped me to understand what's happening. This this state society relationship, state minority relationship, in this period. And I like that it is an oxymoron. It's an it's demi is an Islamic legal category, right? And I put it into next to the term secular. Yeah. Armenians, what I see is that basically Armenians behave like demis. This is this reincarnated demis. As long as like mm. I'll perform loyalty, I'll make sure that I don't uh, act as an entitled citizen, entitled to security, but no, I understand that my uh, the rights that I will receive are going to be in response to what I do, yeah. not mm-hmm. who I am. In the in this case, they are Turkish citizens. They should be, but they don't. And everyone knows that they are not equally Turkish as the others, right? They are actually excluded from the emergent category of the Turk, yeah. mm-hmm. as it was defined in 1924 in the founding constitution of the land. But it's secular because it's happening in the Republic of Turkey, which claims to be anti-Ottoman, post-Ottoman, all these things. Well, this sounds like a lot of kind of the more recent scholarship on secularism and rethinking kind of interconfessional relationships in the Middle East, like uh, Sabah Mahmoud's new book. But in her new book, she, you know, she looks at kind of Egypt and the rise of secularism and basically kind of makes an argument that says like interconfessional relations, the place of Christians in modern day Egypt has actually gotten in a sense, much worse under the kind of reign of secularism. Uh, and, you know, anyways, I don't want to get into it, but sure, yeah. she she makes these type of arguments. Uh, and it sounds like an interesting uh, place of connection. Yeah, what I do, I think that is a bit different from Sabah's project is I specifically look at the, the Armenian's perspective, yeah. which would be the Copts of Egypt, for yeah. instance. The, the context is extremely different. Copts retained, there is legal pluralism in Egypt, for instance. The case of Turkey is then becomes even more telling because there is no mm-hmm. uh, legal pluralism. So the, the, the power of the church is curtailed by the church or the rabbinite is curtailed by the Turkish state. In order to, but they still go back to that mode of uh, 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 dimitude. Yeah. 
and performance. Because religion remains, religion continues its career. Mm. It's also in the lines of Osama Maktis's work. So if you want to place my mm -hmm. work from, so religion, A, it was relevant in the Ottoman Empire as we know it. Then it becomes the language of the intervention, Western states into their into the Ottoman Empire as the core religion is suffering, all that business that comes with colonization and imperialism. And then uh, for the case of Armenians, it is, no, for the Ottomans, the way they disintegrated had religious connotations. If you look at the map, when the Balkans yeah, get all the Balkans, they, that's, when you are Christian majority, you get your own state. Yeah. When you are not, when you are majority Muslim, such as North Africa, you don't get your state. You get to be colonized by the French or the British right. and, and the Italians. Uh, so Armenians, come 1915, last majority Christian community, the real, like concentrated in particular position. So if they were not Christians, they were not going to be massacred for mm -hmm. sure. And they know it. Come 1923, religion, again, continues its career because Lausanne, the British and the French forced them, these minority protection treaties on Turkey, saying that, no, you need to protect these people because they are different religiously. Mm -hmm. So the ways in which your religion defined you in the 16th century Ottoman Empire, similarly, it defines you in 1930s Turkish sure. Republic. Yeah. If you're Muslim different if you're Christian no but the discourse has changed from one that recognizes difference as okay and that comes with uh, certain entitlements and right. deprivations now to to the one that is secular citizenship uh, secular citizenship rights pretends as if it doesn't matter but in practice it does actually the Turkish Republic goes back to pre-1939 uh, demitted mm. Uh, idea because the first first things that uh, that they do is to to kick uh, Armenians and Greeks from the civil bureaucracy mm. and then Arme they are not allowed to pursue careers in the military mm. they can be soldiers but they can't be they can't be trusted right. which is the basic underlying premise of the method right from what I've heard, like, for instance, until very recently in the Turkish military, like anyone who was like outwardly religious, Islamically religious at all, was also not allowed to ever uh, rise up in any way, you know, into the leadership ranks of the, you know, they could be soldiers, but they could never be. In the early Turkish Republic, right? The, or until, later, even until like, yes. you know, 2005 or something, you know, like. Yes, which is a very good point, because uh, if I learned one thing from the oral history interviews that I conducted with Armenians, elderly Armenians in the United States is that they liked Kemalism. Yeah. And I was surprised initially thinking that, because, but, but you, like in one sense, they would say that, no, we couldn't speak Armenian in the, in the streets because it was not allowed, we would be punished. But then they would say that, oh, Mustafa Kemal was this great leader. Mm -hmm. And I, finally, I understood that they liked the anti Islamism, anti-religious uh, secularism. They yeah. saw in him someone who is not an Islamist, mm -hmm. if we were to use the terms, the contemporary right. terms, right? Like he's finally is. So even though yeah. yeah, so even though he is moving, you know, like Armenian uh, culture, language, religion into the private sphere, but he's also doing that for Muslims and for other people, and so like people, 
And it's, I mean, it's this kind of classic secularist uh, push, which, you know, limits uh, religion to the private world. Uh, exactly. And Armenians, yeah. like all minorities, find it appealing. Right. Because, especially because they are seen as others because of their religion. Right. It's not any other uh, criteria that's making them as these aliens. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the unveiling that I talk about this in the book, the unveiling of Muslim women, they welcome this opportunity because they themselves are unveiled. So they'll pass even better, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So they, this unanimity, anonymity, all these things, the hat reform of 1926, Armenia exalted that. Uh, now finally, Turks, even Turks, which they used to call very recently as barbarians, mm. right? Now even they are civilizing. They buy into these things. Huh. And interestingly, genocide kind of, in the genocidal acts, they see self-fulfilling prophecies, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So after this, it's going to be even more difficult for them <laughs> to think that they are not. Because right. they do remember, even though they don't ever talk about oh, yeah. these things after 23. Um I think the ultimate example of this is 1935 changing of the day of rest in Turkey mm-hmm. from Sunday to uh, from Sunday. Friday to Sunday. Right, yeah. paradoxical oh. in some sense, based on what you just <laughs> said. Yes, yes, because the same cadre of people who just got rid of their Christians or trying hard right. still yeah. are now uh, embodying clearly Christian practices in the name of laicity and secularism and Armenians will like it. Well, Lerna, one of, one of the great things about um, uh, your approach in this work, uh, especially in terms of establishing uh, something that we might call post-genocide study of Armenian community, is that w- we can see how there's actually many different periods of change uh, following the fall of the Ottoman Empire, that it's not a before and after picture, but rather that one period is rather different than another. I mean, when you talk about Armenians loving uh, Kemalism, certainly Kemalism in 1925 looked very different than in 1935. And so, you know, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, even in the aftermath, as you say, in, in the post-genocide period, what we really have is many different periods of change, each with their own iteration. Yes. What I f- figured was that Armenians were very upset, very sad the day when Atatürk died in 1938. Hmm. And they, in general, the tone is that they didn't like Ismet Pasha, the, the, yeah. the, the guy that came, which is, which is shared by also many non-Armenian uh, Turkish citizens. Milishev is not Kurd, definitely. Uh, that are among those people who don't uh, like the looming, uh, this, this idea, this the era of Ismet Pasha is not remembered in equally favorable terms by sure. Armenians, definitely. But connected to this, a last point is when I'm talking about Armenian elite, Armenian spokespeople, they did this, they did X. Uh, I'm, obviously, I'm not uh, suggesting that we are talking about a monolith here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's usually the first thing that people ask to me. Right. No, I'm taking the difference of this group for granted. Mm-hmm. We don't need to even talk about it. Every group is heterogeneous. Thus, right. Armenians are also heterogeneous, but there are real structural legal boundaries in which they could operate. Sure. Uh, and that is one binding factor that that pushed them to behave in certain ways they did. But also is that there are certain topics and ideas around which there was consensus among Armenian elites, regardless 
of their political background. And that is the fact that family and a gendered way of organizing space, organizing labor, national mm-hmm. communal labor, was the only way that Armenians could survive as Armenians in a Turkey that was bent on not uh, allowing them to be the kind of Armenians that they wanted to be. And I mean, that gendered aspect of the whole process is is why it's so particularly fascinating to uh, study this um, phenomenon in part through the lens of women and through uh, feminists and Armenian uh, women uh, writers and intellectuals uh, figures that show the complexity and the heterogeneity of the Armenian community, figures that get to the heart of these questions, uh, both surrounding gender and, and the political um, presence of Armenians uh, in Turkey uh, after 1923 as a whole. Uh, I think uh, the book does that well. It's interesting research, and uh, I do encourage our listeners uh, to to go check out that book and read about um more in depth in, in some of these subjects that we've been discussing today. And I appreciate you coming and talking to us today, Lerna. In fact, indeed hosting us at your office <laughs> and on the MIT campus and talking with us about your book. Uh, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having thank me. You. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ida. And thank you, Nir, for joining us today. Uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in, staying to the end of this extended interview with Lerna Ekmekjolu on her uh, new book, Recovering Armenia, from Stanford University Press. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for a link to where you can uh, check out that book and also check out a bibliography of some other important works for background reading on today's subject. That's also a place where you can find other episodes in our series on um, historicized identities uh, in the Ottoman and post-Ottoman worlds um, and uh, hopefully get in touch with our Facebook community, uh, now over 20,000 strong, uh, where you can also keep up with our latest content. I want to thank you all for listening, invite you to join in our next episode of Ottoman History Podcast, and until then, take care.